Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. On this, the third Sunday of Advent, in which um, we are invited to rejoice a little bit, uh, back when Advent was the much more uh, severe season, um, and we didn't fill our calendar with so many rejoicing all along, this was a Sunday in which we kind of got to take a break. Mary's song, the Magnificat, has um, often been included on this Sunday as a reminder for us who are longing in Advent that God does not forget God's promises. And that is why Mary is proclaiming. The Magnificat is just a Latin word which means to magnify. I ma- my soul doth magnify the Lord, um, as uh, the King James Bible puts it. And we don't use the word magnify in that way anymore. Um, the other day, um, we buy, so Christ Church buys gift cards for New Hope families um, each Christmas. So they get a $50 gift card to kind of help buy groceries or buy other things that they need at the end of the year. And I was having a hard time authorizing the cards. So I finally call customer service, and the woman at customer service says, Can you read me the numbers that are on the sheet? And I begin to do this, trying to figure out how many zeros there were in a row. And I said, I wish I had a magnifying glass at my desk, right? That's what we think about magnify. We make something bigger than what it really is. But it's old usage, it's original usage. It is about proclaiming something. It is easy for us to take this Magnificat as a manifesto of action. And people have been fearful for it over the years. The Magnificat, the song of Mary, is prayed and sung every evening prayer in the Anglican tradition. And the um, East India Trading Company was so afraid of Mary's song that they banned it from being prayed in India. And we oftentimes think of it as a call to our action, and in a sense it is because it describes what God's kingdom is like. The Magnificat is rooted deeply in the Jewish traditions and stories. Go and look at the song of Hannah and the song that she sings at the birth of her son Samuel. Go and listen to the words in the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. But it's easy for us to think that these are prescriptive things that we're signed up to do. We need to add these things to our to-do list when really we have to see them as descriptive. If we want to know what God's kingdom is like, this is the description of God's kingdom. They are not additional to-do lists for us, but if we want to live in God's kingdom... I shouldn't say that if we want to because it's not, it's not a trade. 
Um, God's kingdom is like this, and we all want to live as wholesomely, perfectly as possible, and so we should pray these words so they become our prayer. As you sat there and we heard Deacon Bill read um, about the rich being sent away empty, you probably thought, ha-ha, Elon Musk. And I'm sorry to tell you that in Jesus' day and age and the time in which Mary is singing this very song, we all in this room would be sent away empty. As Mary told us that God has thrown the mighty down from their thrones, you said, yes, there you have it, Joe Biden or Donald Trump. But if this is prescriptive, I'm here to warn you, you're going to get thrown out on your keister. I don't know how many of you all have seen the movie Downfall, which portrays Hitler's last days. And I think in many ways it's an apt description of the world in which we live in. A world in which the powers and principalities which try to thwart God's kingdom and will always fail. And how people grasp at anything they can in order to stay in power. And the Magnificat is a word to our world. That the way things are is not the way things are supposed to be. As I mentioned that um, these, uh, these words, these prayers, are rooted in, Ju in, in Judaism's own history and story. Rabbi Dan Kyman from the local synagogue came and spoke to my class at Holland Hall. And he said uh, to them in a Jewish 101 class, he said, um, all Jewish festivals can be summed up in this way. They tried to kill us, they failed, now let's eat. <laughs> Throughout its history, the Jewish people have been a constant target of violence, hatred, and oppression. The fact that there are any Jewish people in this world is a miracle. And we could learn a lot about how um, Judaism looks out upon the world and its uh, trust in God. One pastor says that one of the challenges for Christians is that we are convinced that we see the world in a more transparent and real way than the ways that we find in scriptures themselves. We think that um, all of the world is, um, is, is already there and the scriptures constantly tell us that sin is a reality. That there is this constant tension between our trust of God and our desire to exert more power. And this is why Mary, the mother of God, is a model for our Christian faith and life. I know it's a common question that we hear on the radio during this time of year. A question you may have been wrestling with yourself. Mary, did you know? And the answer is yes, Mary knew. The angel Gabriel tells her, that Jesus will be the son of the Most High. And she's told at Simeon, by Simeon at the presentation, that this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel. That many, um, that, but with that comes a warning that a sword will pierce Mary's own soul too. Martin Luther concluded that Mary realized that God have, could have chosen a woman of high position in the world's eyes to bear the Savior. 
But instead, God chose a lowly handmaiden. Mary was, uh, was aware of her unworthiness in terms of the world and how it values people. But again, God always values the people that the world does not. Luther said that her, her statement that all generations shall call me blessed was not about herself, but about God's greatness. That in showing that God constantly chooses the least and the lost and the ones that normally aren't picked, that God is showing blessing through her. On NPR a few years ago, on This American Life, they did a story about um, belief in America. They talked to one father whose four-year-old daughter came up to him one time as they were driving and said, hey, what are all those things in the front of people's houses? And she was talking about a crush set. And he realized that even though he had grown up in a religious household, he had never really talked to his daughter about faith. So they went out and they bought a kid's Bible and they started reading through the stories and, and she wanted to know more and more. And um, he would try to explain to her, well, you know, Jesus was really about do unto others as you would have them do unto you. One day, they're driving by a church and there's this giant cross that had been put up in Holy Week. And she goes, hey, what's that cross? And he goes, well, uh, I guess I never told you the whole story. And so he tells her the story about how Jesus was killed by the Roman government and religious authorities who were so unnerved about his proclamations that they feared him and decided death was far easier of a solution. One day as they're, um, you know, about a little bit after the time in, in, in which they had uh, talked about, you know, this, the story more. Um, they, it was Martin Luther King weekend. And they were sitting at a park bench. He had taken the day off. And the newspaper there was on the, the, the park bench, there was a giant picture of Martin Luther King. And she goes, well, who's that? And he goes, oh, well, that's Martin Luther King. That's why we don't have... Um, we're off today. We're remembering him. She goes, well, what did he teach? And he said, well, he says that people should treat people no matter what their color of skin was like. And she says, oh, so that sounds kind of like Jesus. And he goes, yeah, I, I guess it does. I guess it's kind of do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And so she said, um, well, what did they do to him? And he said, well, they killed him too. Fleming Rutledge warns us that the world will take offense at Jesus. That many will react violently at him and those who truly follow him. We are reminded in Advent that the way of the conquering Messiah is the way of his suffering. Advent tells us that Christmas is not just about a beautiful, tiny, little baby. But a beginning of us remembering that the baby will grow up and that violence will be his future. Flannery O'Connor reminded us that grace operates surrounded by evil. And from the time of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom has suffered violence. 
The shadow of the cross falls even upon the manger. Let me ask you, in this room today, is there anyone who is finding life hard? Is there anyone who's living up to disappointments and expectations that they don't think that they can meet? Have you ever asked yourself asking the question, why is it that the good people seem to be the ones who suffer? In the last day of God, King Herod and Pontius Pilate are going to be judged. President Biden and President Trump and all the future presidents will be judged too. Lyndon Baines Johnson was said to have said to senators who were reluctant to vote for civil rights legislation, warning them that history would judge them poorly and they needed to begin to think about how they wanted to be remembered. And I think that remembering the stories is important. I think thinking about how we're remembered can actually be a great motivation for doing good. I think of Carolyn Donham who accused Emmett Till of hitting on her and leading to his gruesome murder and torture. Only if she had thought about how history would remember her. I went to the Civil Rights Museum in Atlanta. They have a sit-in simulation. You put on these headphones and you listen to what it was like to try to do a sit-in. I could only make it a minute. I think absolutely we should think about history will say to us. But much of history gets lost. Much of what, um, much of the evil that is done does not get remembered. And, if we're honest, some of the things that we do now and a hundred years from now might seem strange and outdated. So the warning is that we will be judged, but it's not a judgment of history, it is a judgment of God. It's an honest take that we make in Advent that we are not strong enough, we are not virtuous enough, we are not righteous enough. We are not able to resist our demons. None of us are the worst that we are and none of us are the best that we are. We are, as Paul says, one who simply is sometimes unable to do the very thing that I want to do and can't seem to do the thing that I want to do. Fleming Rutledge says we might all fear the judgment, but she reminds us that something has happened in regards to this judgment. The judge arrives upon the scene, and the judge is not what we thought, not the one who was there to cast us into outer darkness, but a judge who is stricken with blows and suffering, feet and hands that are torn by spikes, a brow that was pierced by a thorn of, a, a crown of thorns. The judgment has already happened, Rutledge reminds us. It has taken place in Jesus' own body. The Son of God has borne it all himself. The judge who is to come has given himself to be judged in our place. To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. I offer this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.